This is the 2010 Jack Straw Writers Program. Writer Amber Flame discussed her work with program curator Jared Lising. I think that I have such a visceral memory of things that happened in my childhood. Like when I think about the, the trip through the desert, for instance, I can literally smell it and remember it viscerally. Like it's just right there, very present for me. And all my memories are like that. They have a reality to them that that encompasses my imagination at the time. I romanticize like I did when I was a kid and I was fantasizing about how I was fantasizing that I had an audience watching me swim because I was such a star, <laughs> you know, and I'm eight years old and already have an audience, you know. But I remember that, and I remember wanting that and, and imagining what it would be like to experience my life if they were watching instead of living it. And so even things that were out of my control, it was like I was some part of me was clocking it as a memory to use later. And it feels completed. It feels like the circle has come back around and why I remembered all those things growing up is now coming out. Now we'll hear Amber's live reading at Jack Straw Productions. I'm going to be reading some excerpts from a book in progress. It is a, pic, a piece of magical realism. It's my first attempt at fiction and a longer piece. started in 2008. It's called The Strange Disappearance of the Yuva Nubez Twins, The Day of the Dust Storm, and Other Stories of the Town. It's little vignettes, and they're told in different voices. So it starts with the title of the vignette, the name of the character who's reading it, and then... The little vignette. Desert wanderers, the town. There are always rumors of those who become desert wanderers. Some of the older women who stay in town during the harvest say that one notices the most when the town is empty. As the town empties, the children in town grow quiet. They tilt their heads as if listening for something and are easily startled. The crazy lady said this was a sure sign that the ghosts were whispering to them. Their mothers stop and stare at them, hands sudsy with dish soap or doughy with batter, and watch their skinny children stop playing in the yards and tilt their heads toward the desert, listening. The town was, was used to strange things happening. Once, the five people trading foodstuffs in the market all individually swore they saw a demon take hold of Saffronia as she walked through town. One of them reported to the crazy lady that the little imp was green and scaly like the snake in the Garden of Eden and had come up upon Saffronia from behind, riding her. The woman shuddered and told the crazy lady, a strange look came on that girl. She went shrieking into the desert, and that old gringo followed after her, brought her back shaking and sweating with fever. And it was true that one winter Saffronia had been found by the gringo in the desert, shaking and sweating with a fever that didn't leave her body for weeks. The children in town would take the desert wanderers for their imaginary friends. Usually there would only be one or two kids per family left in town come harvest time, and the suddenly alone children came wandering into Margaret's yard to sit at her knees and make up stories about their imaginary brothers and sisters from the desert. She would laugh and listen to them spin long yarns about adventures. She sat on the old and dusty porch furnishings that got more and more broken down as the years passed, strumming her guitar or the mandolin the black-haired man left her. When some of the parents complained to her that she was encouraging weird behavior, she reminded them of the twins and how happy the town had been when they loved each other. The Lemon Man, El Negra. 
Some of the women in the town were lucky enough to have patches of land where things would grow. And so one woman would grow tomatoes, her neighbor had small orange trees. The children in town helped their mother raise chickens, hogs, and a few rangy, stringy cattle. A few pecan trees had been cultivated, and between us all, everyone left in town during harvest time had plenty to do, and work and skilled labor and goods were bartered for food. The rain cloud houses chilies and loses concoctions were not readily available to the rest of the town. They had small, rare chili crops, and the land had to be cycled and allowed to lie fallow. So they grew things mostly for export. They had solid sources of revenue from long associations in Europe and Africa, and Vertha's strains sold for a lot of money to connoisseurs and collectors of plants. In that way, too, Margaret separated herself and the girls from the rest of the town. Once I dated the lemon man. The lemon man found a lemon tree in the ruins of a town in the desert that had neither died nor gone to seed. He would go out and harvest the lemons, prune the tree, make sure the irrigation was sufficient. He smelled of lemons all the time. His skin would sweat lemon scent as we made love, and my house would reek of them for days. He had a gentle magic with plants and got my cilantro to keep from going wild and bitter. My garden bloomed while we loved, and we would tempt each other in the kitchen, teasing delicious recipes out of the fruits of our labor, and I knew how Luz's chili magic worked. When all your scents become focused on one central trigger, I shat lemon scent, pissed lemon. My cum on my lover's mouth tasted of lemon. I could taste it on his tongue. Once I found Saffronia and Benny fucking in the garden shed. I'd come out to put my boots away, and there they were in the dark, running like beautiful little piglets. They didn't pause when I came in, and I basked in the glow coming off Saffronia's skin. Her joy was pure, and I took a little away with me. That day had magic, and I learned to see the glow when she found her way into his arms. The girls became tangible in the air of the town. In the summer of the dust storm, we had repeated lightning. Saffronia would come into my kitchen to get lemons from the lemon man, and they would sit in silence, peeling the lemons down and salting and sucking them. They liked salt and sour. She was warm and sleepy beautiful those afternoons, contented and bone-weary in love. But once, once she crept into my house in the middle of a clear, starry night and woke me in my bed. Sometimes I wish Azora was gone. And she choked like she couldn't force her vocal cords to form the words, shook and wept in my arms until dawn. Porch parties, Vertha. No one knows that I used to watch my mother's porch parties. Luz thinks I don't know what went on before the summer they called down the rainstorm, but she's wrong. I've never told her. Luz would put me to bed and she would go and read or work in the kitchen while Margaret sat on the porch singing that song and calling the men and women in town to her. Slipping out my bedroom window, I sat in the grass and watched the porch through the vines, watched the men and women drink and laugh and talk to Margaret in low, sultry voices. Sometimes to entertain the group, one would tell a pornographic story, and I was always afraid that my gasps of pleasure could be heard over the music of their conversation. Everyone on the porch wanted Margaret, wanted her to sing, to tell a story, to choose them. I watched Margaret choose her lovers. Sometimes, after all the others would drift away, I would go to Margaret's bedroom to watch Margaret and her lover please each other in her bed. I learned so much that way, but I never shared with anyone, especially Luz. I even saw her with a black-haired mandolin player. I knew as soon as I saw him that he would be different. He came to our house early, before Luz had even put me to bed, before Margaret began to sing. He said her song was still echoing in the mountain. He was beautiful. 
I couldn't wait to sneak out of my room that night and watch them on the porch. It was wonderful to watch Margaret spin her web over her lover. It was a tangible silver thing. I was sure the others saw the web and rejoiced in it like I did, sitting in the damp grass. The next morning, I followed him when he left the house. I watched him walk to the creek, then back across town to the mountain, which he stood up, he stood looking up at for a very long time. He played his mandolin as he walked, strumming little snippets of melodies that dissipated before I recognized any of them. He turned away from the mountain and walked out toward the desert, and I heard when his song began to change. The desert will change a person. I've watched it happen to child after child that followed me and lose out to study plants. One will suddenly get this strange look, tilt the head, and look off into the desert horizon. El Negra has told me a few of the stories about the desert wanderers, so I knew what they were hearing. When the black-haired mandolin player heard the desert wanderers for the first time, his whole being lit up. I remember wanting to touch him. It was like he glowed. That night, he couldn't tear himself from the desert until he heard Margaret's song. It was the only thing strong enough to pull him from what he was listening to. The next few nights, he would spin Margaret wild stories from what he had listened to all day long, and they would lay fascinated with each other in her bed. One night, he seemed to be in a fever. I watched through the vines as he tried to play one song or another and fail. He kept jumping up and walking off the porch, then coming back. His face was anguished and pale. Eventually, he told Margaret he had to go and I followed him to El Negra's house. The black-haired mandolin player, Margaret. He used to whisper to me his own stories. And then he came to me one night before all the others, and I waited in the twilight for the thump of his desert-dusted boots on the wooden step. I sat in the dark corner, away from the red paper lanterns, and watched him approach my shadows. He leaned in and I smelled the mesquite and aloe in his sweat, the juices of the prickly pear on his breath. He began to whisper their stories to me. His words pinned me to my rocking chair, their strange journeys wrapping around me in tangible cobwebs. I grew old listening to him, could see my vitality seeping out of me as I watched his enthrallment grow. I grew old as I watched him prepare to leave me. I hated them for what they told him. He was a babe in their arms, lulled by their promises, and I began to hate him too for it. I began to pull at him. Less and less did we find something to talk about that wasn't in their strange tongue, and I could sense our ending drawing near. I begged El Negra for unusual magics to make him stay, and when she wanted to pat my head like comforting a dog, I began to hate her too. At first, he came to me with his hungry belly for stories. I knew how to spin the wild tales, and we would whisper the details into each other's ears through the nights we spent together. We took our pleasure from each other's words, rubbed them into our bellies, and licked them from each other's thighs. But too soon, too soon, the day came when I had no new story, when my voice was quieter than those damn ghosts in the desert. In that twilight, I waited in vain. Later that night, he came with the others, late, distracted and impatient, and I could not beguile him. That night, it was the first of their stories he whispered from my arms. It is fair to say I grew jealous. It is fair to say I turned my ear away, would not let him pour in their truths. It is fair to say I did not let him love us both. But it is also fair to say it was not me he chose. This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2010 curator of this program is Jared Lizen. 
Music performed by Johanna Cunyon and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure, CJ Lazenby, and Steve DeTori. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, For Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, Washington State Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.